Hi, this is Toby. I just wanted to chip in before we start today's episode to say that uh, for those of you who set your clocks by the extremely reliable publishing schedule of this podcast, well, you might have noticed that your clocks have got a little bit out of whack recently. Sorry about that. Um, For the first time since we launched in the year 2020, uh, I missed our scheduled spot. I intended to put today's episode out this time last week but I unexpectedly had to self-isolate and I was stuck in the wrong country, unable to travel. Apparently there's some kind of bug going around, I don't know. Anyway, it wasn't possible to finish the editing in time. So instead, here we are a week later and normal service will resume from now on. I have a really interesting series of guests lined up for 2022, starting with the conversation you're about to hear on the importance of trust in the relationship between scientists and policymakers and lots more to come. So I hope you and your families are fit and well, as mine are too, thankfully. And if you're listening to this as it's published, then Happy New Year to you and see you again on the other side of the theme music. Enjoy. Hello. Welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby and today I'm joined by doctors Rebecca Shellock and Mark Dickey Collis. So Rebecca Shellock is a researcher at the Australian National University based in the Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. She specialises in marine social sciences and she's also worked as an advisor to the British government developing the social sciences evidence base for marine and coastal policy. And Mark Dickey Cullis is the chair of the advisory committee to the International Council for the Exploration of the Sea. And he's previously worked as a scientific expert on fisheries in the Netherlands and Northern Ireland. So welcome both of you to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us. Sure. It's good to have you on board. So our topic today is trust and specifically trust at the science policy interface, which of course is very often talked about. And I guess it's taken as pretty obvious that we need trust if you want a well-functioning relationship between scientists and policymakers, because we need trust in any well-functioning relationship anywhere in life. Um, But in your research, you've delved a little deeper into the topic than that. So perhaps you could start by telling me a bit about that. What have you been working on and and why? Thanks, Toby. Yeah, so the concept of trust has been given quite a lot of attention, actually, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we've been really looking at research into kind of the public's trust in science. Actually, in this case, we're very interested in kind of policymakers and their trust in science itself. Yeah, I, I know this might sound a bit dumb, but how are you defining trust? So in general terms, trust is about having a belief in the reliability and the truth or ability of someone or something. And it can involve a leap of faith. So in our study, we define trust as a psychological state in which a truster accepts some level of vulnerability based on a, a positive expectation of a trustee. So we're very much interested in the International Council for the Exploration of the Sea. And really, we wanted to look at the relationship between them and decision makers and policymakers. So in the case of our research, um, a trustor is an individual or group who requests science advice from the International Council for the Exploration of the Sea, or for sure it's ICs, um, and they are the, the trustor is the policymaker. And in terms of the trustee, that's ICs who deliver scientific advice on marine ecosystems to policymakers. So we're really interested in that level of trust at that science policy interface. Right. 
So you referred, I think, right at the start to trust in general in science. So about whether policymakers in this case essentially believe science can deliver what it's what it needs to deliver. But then you also talked a lot about trust between individuals, which I guess is more like the policymaker trusting that the scientists will come up with the goods. They strike me as two different things. Yeah, we, we, we've defined it in three kind of uh, axes. One is between individuals. One is trust in the process and, and the product. And, and the other is the trust in the organizations as a whole. And I always come back to in my personal experience that you can't have any of those three axes working well if one of them is broken down. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I can believe it. And so then my other kind of preliminary question is, why ICs? Why is ICs a good case study for this kind of research? Well, ICs is a very old science network. Uh, we began in the 1900s. And when they say scientists say that you can only fish so much cod, that's us. And we hide in the background and we have a whole range of processes and frameworks to ensure that we are as independent of government as possible. We're the only part, Europe is the only part of the world which does this, by the way. And uh, we provide that information on 240 fish stocks every year, plus also ecosystem-based management and the ecology of the North Atlantic Ocean um, to governments and governmental institutions across all of Northeast Europe from Russia, Norway, Iceland, United Kingdom, and the EU, and also the environmental organizations, which are called OSPAR and HELCOM, which are working on the environment and ecosystems of the Baltic and the Atlantic Ocean. So that's what ICES is. We're a network of 1,500 to 2,000 scientists annually producing work that flows into advice for governments. Okay, and a slightly geeky question but then this kind of detail is really like the bread and butter of many of the people who listen to this podcast what kind of institutional setup do you have are you like baked into the policy making processes so that you're always consulted as a kind of institutional player or do you deliver ad hoc advice when a policymaker asks for it we're both we are baked into the annual kind of fisheries cycle. We have memoranda of understanding and grant agreements with a whole host of countries and institutions. Plus, we accept what we call special requests, which are one-off requests for advice. And why do you, why does ICES have something in particular to say about trust then? Because we have, over our history, lost and regained trust a number of times. Uh, we have a, a, quite a few examples where the worst thing a marine or fisheries scientist can do is make a mistake and then try and explain their way out of that rather than acknowledging that they've made a mistake. And in our history, over the course of 100 years, we have actually a number of times failed to admit that we've made a mistake. We also have a situation where we're... Um, always in a changing environment with changing different political objectives with the people we're working with. And so having a trust to be a reliable partner that people can turn to, I think, is is very important. Another one we were very poor at is we actually started, and I'm going to use the phrase normative, we were going into normative values. We were setting the management objectives. And this was about the 1990s. And this broke down the trust because the government said that's our job. 
you shouldn't be doing this as scientists. So we had to pull back and rebuild the trust again. So we slipped up a number of times. That's why I think we're a very good example. Well, great. I appreciate your, your candidness about that. Uh, okay, so, so Becca then, as the researcher, tell me a bit more about the particular trust study that you did with ICES. So um, a group of us from the Australian National University uh, and from ICES, we came together to examine ICES and to look at what we could learn from the ICES case study. So overall, we were really interested in the importance of trust, how important is trust in terms of the relationship between ICES and decision makers. We were also really interested in, the, in what kind of strategies could be used to build trust at this interface between science and policy. And also, finally, we wanted to look at the challenges of maintaining trust and how it can be maintained, but also rebuilt when compromised. Okay. And uh, what's the answer? <laughs> what, what did you find out? <laughs> we found out so many different things. <laughs> um, but overall, like Mark said, it was a really interesting case study for us. And we learned a lot of different things. So in terms of the research kind of as I mentioned we kind of have three main objectives um, so the first objective was all about the importance of trust so how important is trust when working at the interface between science and policy and we found that trust was really really important in, and in terms of su the success of ICs so it was really important for knowledge exchange but also for research impact so we interviewed a whole host of participants who are connected with ICs and yeah, we got some really nice quotes from them. So one of the quotes we got was all about um, that trust was vital and they thought that, that the science policy interface couldn't function without trust being part of that equation. So that was really, really interesting. Um, and like Mark said earlier, we also identified um, where trust is required and which different scales. So as we said, it's trust between individuals. Um, trust in the organisation, so having trust in ICs as an organisation and as a brand, um, and also trust in the process. So um, having trust that the advice that's produced has gone through a really rigorous process um, and can really be used for meeting conservation and management and sustainability goals. Mm -hmm. We've also looked at um, which kind of strategies can be used to um, build trust and maintain trust. And we found that there were kind of 14 different strategies that we could learn from ICs. 14? So, yeah, 14 different strategies. Okay, right. Yeah, so quite quite a few. Yeah. Um, so I'd recommend having a look at paper, but I'm kind of going to talk about kind of five of them. So we found that it was really important to be transparent. Um, so again, going back to that process, it's really good for those um, policymakers, decision makers to have an idea of the process behind the advice that's been generated. You need to be impartial. So you're not meant to kind of advocate for a particular outcome. Um, and also we found that it's like having regular contact with stakeholders is really, really important and creating those opportunities for interactions that are formal and informal. Um, also being able to kind of demonstrate independence. So engaging evenly with all different stakeholders and also being mindful of politics and political sensitivities. So yeah, there was quite a few different strategies that we could learn from ICs. Yeah. Thanks. I suppose none of those uh, strategies will, will come as a big shock to people who are familiar with this area. But uh, I find it interesting that they all came up in this one case study. And you also mentioned about ways to repair trust when it's been damaged. Did you come to conclusions about what's important there? Um, we found that there were actually kind of six key strategies that can be used when trust has been kind of lost or eroded. So we found that um, it's really important that when 
trust has been lost, that you're really honest about the mistake that's been made, that you can identify the mistake and also um, how the mistake happened, um, being able to implement steps to prevent it from happening again, correcting that advice that's been given, so giving it time to rebuild trust, and also, again, ensuring that face-to-face contact to build trust and help to maintain it. Well, the, the, the thing that we as ICs really push very hard is this uh, do not advocate for specific outcomes. And when people discover that I am the chair of the committee that does all this fish work and they say, well, why aren't the governments implementing your advice as BBC News or whoever says I should, they should? Um, when I say it's not our job to police the governments on this, it tends to raise a few eyebrows. And it's actually key to one of our selling points, and it is a selling point in, in maintaining that relationship with these governments, is that we tell them the consequences of their action, but we don't judge them on the basis of that. So we're not advocates for our science as such. Now, this is very traditional in fisheries world. And actually, when we move into the conservation and environmental world, we find that lots of people find this jarring. And it's a very interesting relationship. And uh, particularly, we are seen as too passive and non-threatening to the people we're advising. So there's a real tension in that situation, but it's key to our fisheries work and maintaining our trust with the governments. Okay. I'd like to explore that a bit more. When you started explaining that, I I thought you were going to go in a different direction. So I suppose there are two different ways in which you might be passive, as you put it, or you might appear passive. One is the way you just described, which is where you make the recommendations, but you don't police the outcomes. So you say, we recommend X because of evidence A, B, and C, but we don't judge whether or, or how well governments implement those recommendations like as you said you're not advocates for your own science and i hear what you're saying about that seeming absolutely normal in some spheres of work but kind of surprising in others like with conservation organizations who might otherwise see you as very much aligned with them but then there's the other way of appearing passive which is where i thought you were going where you refrain from making recommendations so you lay out the science and you maybe explain expected outcomes based on different causes of action but you don't take that final step and say Therefore, we recommend this course of action. You leave that part up to the policymakers. Where does IC stand on that uh, question? What we do is before we give the advice, we develop a framework with the governments, the requesters, as we call them. And we clarify with them their acceptable risks and the management objectives. So in the fisheries context, we have this thing called maximum sustainable yield. And a government will say, yes, maximum sustainable yield is our objective. Please give us the right number or the consequences of catching this amount of fish in terms of MSY, as we call it. So we take a step back because fisheries negotiations are fairly um, public and full of many uh, disagreements. And the very idea that people who are making these decisions are going to, in public, explicitly show their trade-offs and accept that there will be losers isn't going to happen. So we try and agree a framework beforehand. We do give options, but we have a preferred option, which is the pre-arranged management objective of the government or the uh, EU common fisheries policy, etc. 
whether that be conservation or resource exploitation. Yeah, so it's all agreed in advance. And that also helps to explain then why you're not banging the drum for one particular approach, like uh, optimizing for sustainability, for instance. If you've already been asked by a government that they want to optimize for resource exploitation, then you give your advice in that framework. Absolutely. Or if you're in the Baltic, for instance, the recreational and leisure fisheries are in some ways socially much more important than the fishing industry to some countries. So the right of a Finnish family to go out with their gillnets every Saturday is a key management objectives for the Finnish fishing policy. Hmm. But in that case, and Becca, you mentioned this as well, one of your key criteria being impartiality, so being independent of political influence, um, and steering between various kinds of stakeholders, especially in fishing policy, where I can well imagine it's a very heavily lobbied policy area. That must be a very fine line to tread, though, given what you've just said, Mark, because it's quite a subtle position to say we are independent and impartial, but we also agree with the government in advance what their policy aims are, and we calibrate our advice to those aims. I mean, I think that is consistent from the inside, but how does it look from the outside? Like for a lobby group that thinks the government should have a different set of policy priorities, it must be frustrating that in the end they can never point to scientific advice for support because the advisors are always kind of aligned to the same priorities as the government, deliberately so. Um, yes. Uh, I can't remember the paper, but there's a, a lot of papers, I think from the 70s and 80s, about insider advisors. And you've already addressed to us whether we're, we are an insider advisor, and we are an insider advisor. And because of that, we are also targeted by people as being too close to the people we provide advice to. We're also criticized for not having enough transparency in terms of our conversation with the requesters uh, who want advice in the early and preliminary stages of setting up these agreements. And that's when it comes to that personal trust, where you're dealing with an individual who's sitting somewhere in Northern Europe or, nor or Western Europe and uh, needs some fisheries advice. And they know they're going to come to us because we have the brand and trust label, et cetera, credible, salient, uh, et cetera. And yet that very interaction questions the legitimacy of our role in this because they trust us perhaps too much. And the people who question our advice as not as being too close say, well, this shows you're too close. Yeah, so I'm intrigued by the idea of trying to find this sweet spot between not trusting each other enough and trusting each other too much, trying to keep just the right distance. Can I give you one more example? You certainly can. Two years ago, the environmental non-governmental organization started to rightly complain about the bycatch of dolphins and harbour porpoises. And they proposed a number of measures, uh, particularly to the European Union and to France, and also to the Baltic states. And the way that the European Union dealt with this was they said, well, we're not sure about this information. We think it would be very helpful to send this information to ICES to evaluate, to see if you're, the proposed measures are useful in terms of reducing the amount of bycatch of dolphin and harbour porpoises in these fisheries. And because of our reputation, because of our trust, or trust by a range of people in ICES, uh, 
the NGOs said, yeah, that's a great idea, as long as you pay for it. So the, the government sent the proposals by the NGOs to ICES to look at the measures being proposed to reduce bycatch, mitigation of bycatching, as we call it. And ICES came back and said, actually, these are really sensible. And we'd push it a little further. And that was very helpful for a range of reasons. But most importantly, suddenly, the campaigns to reduce bycatch uh, for these harbour porpoises and dolphins had the legitimacy of ICES behind them because of our role in that system as a, as a trusted operator. Okay, so that's an example of where the trust kind of flows through, right, from you to the policymaker and then on out into the broader community. That has to be the gold standard to aim for, uh, in contrast to what I was just suggesting, where those two directions of trust might be intention. But you set me wondering now whether there's also a problem with being too trusted, even just by government, by policymakers. Can you have too much trust? Well, one of our co-authors, Chris Sitanovich, has one of his earlier papers. He has a, a beautiful U-shape where the system in terms of its effectiveness becomes perhaps less resilient or less stable if the parties become too trusting of each other. There's a whole degree of, of other properties in the system that creep in if there's too much trust. Um, for instance, the scientists can get lazy, they can get blasé, they can become arrogant. Uh, the, the policymakers can do the same. I, Becca has much more experience on the policymaker side than me. Yeah, so I think that there can be sometimes too much trust placed in scientists. And I think that in research has been previously defined as um, or described as blind faith, whereby a decision maker may trust an individual scientist a little bit too much. They don't look at, look at kind of signs of misconduct or misrepresentation of findings. Um, and that can have a detrimental kind of effect on the legitimacy um, of both scientists and decision-making agencies. So it's really important to have trust between science and policy, but it might be too much. Absolutely. Um, another example is um, mackerel. Uh, for years, they were shouting, there's lots more mackerel than ICES are saying. Now, ignoring all the issues we have at the moment with the, the EU, Norway and UK not having any quotas that are, or quota shares that are agreed, we actually were wrong on mackerel for a number of years. And uh, the governments were trusting us and saying, no, ICES says we're running out of mackerel. And the fishing industry was saying, no, there's tons out here. And again, we got egg on our face because um, we, in the end, we had to backtrack. We had a, a whole series of workshops to try and resolve why we were getting the science wrong. And um, unfortunately, the degree of a, a feeling of ICES is omnipotent as a trust giver meant that... Uh, the fishing industry were losing mackerel catches. Okay, so we have an example of, of too much trust leading to mistakes, basically. But how about when trust breaks down and you have too little? Because Becca, this is one area you mentioned as a focus for your study, right? As well as building trust was also repairing it after a breakdown. Has ICs ever experienced a breakdown of trust in that way? And if so, what happens next? Um, I'm going to give a very, very practical example we have a fish stock which almost no one in the north in Europe will have heard of called blue whiting. And we had a number of years where over a million tons of blue whiting were landed every year. And we said, as ICES, that 
this was unsustainable and everything was going to go wrong and the governments needed to act with the fishing industry because it's not always about imposing controls. It's about working with the fishing industry to, to get them to change their behavior too. And the fact was that we were wrong. The oceanography of the North Atlantic had changed and does change off and on and had resulted in huge productivity of this stock of blue whiting. So we had to eat our words and say all our gloom and doom, all these projected declines and collapse of the fish stock never occurred. And yet a few years later, the oceanography did change. And we were in a situation where we again had to warn about this fishery. And everybody just pointed back and said, no, no, you said this before. And this time we said we were wrong the last time. But now we've done some more science, we can explain why it was so much more productive than we thought it was, and our assumptions were wrong. But this time, um, we think we understand the system a lot better. And they said, uh, well, okay, you have admitted you were wrong. We never actually defended our uh, previous advice. We tried to explain it. And that was key, I think, as well. Um, so we said, well, this time things have changed and uh, we won back the trust and they did work with the fishing industry to reduce catches and the assumptions were right this time and the fishery didn't collapse, but the fish stocks did go down and the productivity changed. So I was going to add on one more thing that it obviously takes a really long time to build trust and that's happened within the ISC's case that is taking a long time to build that trust with various different um, decision makers and stakeholders, but that trust can be lost so quickly and it, can, it takes a while to repair it. It might not return to the, uh, the initial levels of trust. But yeah, hopefully these types of strategies can kind of show how you can build that trust if it has been lost. So hopefully that will be interesting and applicable to other case studies. Yes, indeed. So that was my next question. There's obviously some very clear examples of work that's been done specifically at ICES to, to maintain trust and rebuild it. How easily can these lessons be applied elsewhere? The broader message, I think, is that it's a portfolio of issues and approaches that bring trust on these three levels between people, between organizations, and also in process. And it's not just there isn't a panacea. I think that's the other one. That uh, The really awful thing that came out is time. Time matters. And uh, these are things you can't, you have, you've really struggled to put into processes, you know, if it, it, it's a tricky one. It's 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 a mixture of issues that you're dealing with. Yeah, I was going to say as well, Mark, I think one of the pieces of advice in terms of maintaining trust and also repairing it is all about that face-to-face -face contact. And obviously that's been quite difficult during the COVID-19 pandemic as well. So I wonder if that's something that's been occurring and been picked up. We have had a lot of trouble over the last 18 months with maintaining those relationships. It, it really does take extra extra effort to ensure that you get the one-to-one -one time with individuals and also with, between groups to ensure that the relationships um, and the, the sense of trust can be maintained. Hmm. There's a significant difference, I guess, between uh, delivering a big formal written report, you know, the kind of thing you can publish on your website, and delivering that same information face-to-face -face through meetings and conversations and collaborations. Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to go a little bit into the grayer world here. Because of we are an insider advisor and because we are we're written into the system, we're in the Brexit agreement even. It says the UK and the EU will go to ISIS for fisheries advice. 
So we're really entrenched in the system. Because we have that role, there is a, a degree of trust and there can be too much trust. But then there's also the situation that we have the opportunity to, we've said we don't advocate, but we do have the opportunity on a one-to-one level to talk to power and say, in our role, which is a trusted advisor, we have this sense that something is going on and you, you need to be wary of that. And, and those opportunities, I think, have been much less during the, uh, the pandemic. It's been uh, more problematic. No, I was just going to say as well, I think it's really interesting with ICs, with um, obviously requesters discuss um, the topic that they want it delivered on and um, they have those various conversations and then the advice then goes online. That's quite an interesting process as well that gets requested by one particular um, individual, one particular group or government organisation, but then goes online for kind of everyone to see as well. But, but not, the back, not the background of how that question was put together. Right, exactly. So then it seems like there's more than one trustful or ideally trustful relationship at stake. So far, we've been focusing on the trust between the advisor and the policymaker. But do you have any thoughts about trust between the advisor and the other audiences who also have an interest in the advice. I mean, that's surely important, especially if the advice is published online, as you say, for everyone to see. And those two directions of trust might seem to be in tension. Like if one link gets stronger, the other one gets weaker. So for this particular project, we looked at the relationship and the trust between ICs and then these people that request advice. But kind of moving forward, we're really interested to see in terms of ICs and other case studies, um, what the relationship is like and how you can, in terms of trust between the people that actually use the advice, so those people that work within decision making, um, that level of trust and how you can build trust and the relationship between them and ICs is slightly different. For this particular study, we were really interested in interviewing people that were connected with ICs. So they worked within the IC secretariat or they worked in particular expert groups. Moving forward, we're really interested to see Um, information from people that actually use the advice in practice so decision makers and government and how they actually use it in practice yeah that definitely sounds like an interesting area for your next project it'd be good to build more on the empirical evidence base like i said um, there's a lot of theoretical research out there it'd be really good to kind of look at how these strategies can be used in practice so how can other organizations and other scenarios how they can use our strategies and to build trust but also to maintain trust and repair it and whether like they actually work in practice. So actually kind of evaluating how these might work. So we've kind of delivered uh, these particular strategies and it'd be good to see how they can be applied beyond ICs and potentially beyond marine science as well. Great. And, and Mark, what does ICs take away from this? Where do you want to go in the future with it? What would we like to have as a future is actually is to be regularly challenged still because I'm a great believer that too much trust is dangerous for you as a boundary organization. And we're pushing very hard on transparency. We're pushing very hard on having open coding and data uh, freely accessible and all that. And our job is to ensure that people can challenge us because the moment that we, who are sort of in, this, in the shadows almost, are, are, are given a free reign without being challenged, things get very difficult. The next step, which is when the research team go and ask the requesters even in more in depth, I think is going to be much more interesting to us as well. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I don't want to pour cold water on the study because it does sound really valuable, but I wonder whether it actually taught us very much that we didn't already know. Because it sounds like, for instance, ICES had already figured out through trial and error, as it were, the importance of trust and the risk of losing it and strategies to get it back. So were there still some surprises or new lessons in the results of the study, do you think? So I don't think it went so far against the literature. I think what was really interesting is using ICE as a case study, how established it is and how many lessons they've learned over the time. I think that was really, really interesting for us and enabled us to build those strategies. What was really interesting to me was to know that trust was really important, but that it could be lost so significantly. And I think that's something that'd be really interesting in the future to learn more about and how you monitor trust over time and you evaluate it. And I think it would really help with our with our research into knowledge exchange. Hmm. The monitoring and evaluation thing is interesting because it strikes me that if you're inside the system, you just know that trust is important, right? And you know when you trust the other people in the system and you know when they trust you. It's something people are just good at sensing. But what we're perhaps not so good at is spotting danger signs of when we might be starting to lose trust. So I can imagine some kind of structured early warning signals could be really handy. That would be, especially, I mean, Becca touched on this, that um, ICES does a lot of this stuff without strong academic foundation. We don't go out and say we're about to, we've evolved our framework. We've never gone out and designed our framework. So when Becca says they saw lots of the stuff that resonates with the existing literature, I was relieved but also thought learning by doing works when you're over 100 years old. Having said that, trying to reform a 100-year-old organization is also a bit of a nightmare too, because if things become very entrenched, it's very difficult to to change. But um, I was heartened to, to read that, in fact, we were kind of aligning with some of the things recommended in the existing academic literature. Right, which is reassuring on both sides, I guess. Reassuring for ICs that you've ended up in the right place and reassuring for the literature that it holds up well in the context of real life. So, uh, Becca Shellock and Mark Dickey-Collis, thank you both very much for this conversation, for your insights into a century-old science advice mechanism and your honesty and openness in assessing it. And uh, best of luck with the next stage of your research. Thank you very much. Thanks, Davey. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. SAPEA is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, And you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko. So I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.